We're in, we're in the story of Exodus, which, you know, is the heart of the Hebrew Bible. And um, first, I just want to make a word on behalf of uh, the value of ancient storytelling. So, you know, we have constant access to contemporary perspective. We're, we're like water bugs skimming the surface of this vast ocean of information and scrolling through Twitter and Facebook. And it, it can actually be quite helpful and um, refreshing to engage a story with a taproot in the deep past. Like this story came from a time when the global population was like 50 million people. So like Tokyo and Los Angeles spread out over the whole surface of the earth. And because we're so attentive to fast changing things like technology, um, we sometimes miss the things that, that don't change at that speed, that change at the speed of evolution, which is quite slow, like our essential humanity like rivalry in families, like how power dynamics work, like how fear is such an important, plays such an important role in our interactions. And the, the early chapters of Genesis are filled with these kinds of stories. In fact, the first half of the book of Genesis is, uh, is the oldest story we have about a liberation movement. And that is not insignificant. Exodus is the heart of what is called uh, liberation theology. And so it's well worth our attention now. And, and like, just like art, spirituality that begins with ancient storytelling, I think it can offer us, when we're engaging it well, um, like some emotional and creative space to deal with like frightful, complex realities that we're facing today, but from a, a totally different setting. So it's like we enter a different time, a different place, and, and we get a kind of respite from the frenzy and anxiety of scrolling through our social media and all our contemporary triggers, and we relax a little, and then we meet ourselves in the story in unanticipated ways. So if you're plot challenged, and I, I'm definitely plot challenged, um, I find it really helpful to remember the the five major characters of Exodus. And they're all introduced in the first chapter. And they all have contemporary counterparts, which becomes obvious. But I just want to list the five characters. And as long as we know who, who's who, it really helps us with the plot. So you, we have the Egyptians, like the host population. We have Pharaoh, the ruler. We have the Hebrews, which is the name of the children of Israel from the outsider's perspective. The Hebrews, they're like the immigrant population in Egypt at the time, been there for several generations. We have uh, Moses, who is an intersectional person, as Caroline would say. He kind of has feet in both populations. And then we have um, a group of women, Sifra, Pua, and Miriam. Miriam is actually designated a prophet in Exodus. And these are women whose voices ordinarily are stifled, but they, they pop up and they have key roles to play. So the Egyptians, Pharaoh, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews, Moses, and then these women, Sifra, Pua, and Miriam, are really the key players in, in Exodus. So I'm going to reread what uh, Avery did such a great job of reading. It's, it is a dense and it's kind of a heavy passage and want us to spend some time unpacking it. So a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Pharaoh. 
And he said to his people, look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then, should war occur, they will eventually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. And they set over them forced labor foremen so as to abuse them with their burdens, and they built store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramses. And as they abused them, so did they, the Hebrews, multiply, and so did they spread. And they came to loathe the Israelites. And the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard work and with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they performed. The word crushing means something like pulverized here. So the thing is, we're born with empathy. We, we naturally feel with and for others. Uh, Diane spilled some uh, coffee on her on her leg and while we were getting ready and uh, saw all of us, we went like, oh my gosh, we, we naturally feel with and for others. She's fine, by the way, Dai-Dai. Um, but that's why she's not on the screen. Her computer got messed up and she's fixing it. Um, but we can also, especially when we form into cultural, large cultural groupings, we can selectively override our natural empathy and set up systems of oppression. And this dense portion in Exodus 1 has so much insight into like how this happens. And I, I think of it as a paragraph that represents probably years unfolding in Egypt, not months or weeks. So a new leader whose empathy has been muted by his fear comes to power. He's socially or emotionally isolated from the immigrant population that hasn't fully assimilated, but that has been there for generations peacefully, called the Hebrews. He knew not Joseph. That's a big thing. And his, uh, Joseph was the character in, in um, Genesis that brought the children of Israel into Egypt in the first place generations ago. So what's Pharaoh's first move? He goes to the host population, the citizens, the Egyptians, and he spins a, a fear scenario. Look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the oldest trick in the book, isn't it? I mean, this is what we did to the Japanese Americans when Pearl Harbor was bombed, right? We round up all the Japanese Americans. They said they're gonna suddenly become great fans of the emperor. Or when you know the war and the Gulf War broke out, suddenly there's this upsurge in fear-mongering about uh, Muslim Americans. So this is like an old thing. None of this has actually happened, of course, in, in the, even in the story. Um, just as though Japanese Americans were siding with the emperor, it's, it's a new play opening in Pharaoh's brainstem theater. It's this fear-mongering, and, and we are fear junkies. So our, our alarm system is always a sucker for a new threat. And eventually, this unleashes the negative fear energy of the host population onto the Hebrews. The thing that's so remarkable here is that the storyteller emphasizes the complicity of the Egyptians more than Pharaoh's instigation. And they, who? They, the Egyptians, 
set over them forced labor foremen. And as they, who? The Egyptians, abused them, they came to loathe the Israelites, and the Egyptians, finally they're just named to make it clear, and the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor, and they made their lives bitter. So Pharaoh is just the ringleader, the Egyptians are the mob. And so, like, even in the ancient world, with rulers regarded as gods, without any democratic norms or institutions, the leader is only a ringleader and absolutely needs a mob, a complicit population. And once the mob forms, the mob supervises itself. And if no one makes a stink, no one smells a stink. No one objects. And then the oppression gains the massive inertia of the status quo. So when the initial abuse goes unchecked, when there's no voices of dissent in the early going, the oppression settles in like an opportunistic infection. It takes hold, it worsens, it takes over. And as they abused them, they came to loathe the Israelites. So the abuse comes first, and then the loathing comes later. And, and it just goes on. So basically, that's all it takes to go from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood to the gulag. So let's, let's now pivot to our world. Um, you know how all the characters in every good movie remind you of someone in your own life, no matter how far removed their particulars are. Like I started watching um, Anne with an E. Anne with an E, you know, it's, a, uh, I guess, a modern play on Anne of Greek Gables, which I never read, never heard about it, you know, knew that other people read Anne of Green Gables. It's a period piece, very different setting. It's in Canada, it's a long time ago. I'm like, as I'm watching Anne with an E, it's like, oh, I know that person. I know that person. I know that person that's resonating with all these people in my life and my world. So all the main characters in this first chapter really resonate for me. So who are the Egyptians? White America. Who's Pharaoh? Duh. You know, Egyptian for Pharaoh wasn't a, a name. It was a, it was a, it was a term and it meant great house. Um, like White House refers to the president. Pharaoh just meant great house. So Pharaoh is like the nightmare ruler in the White House. Um, the Hebrews, who are the Hebrews? Well, those for whom the American dream is constantly toggling into a nightmare. So everyone whose equal rights have not actually been secured. Um, Moses, Moses is really interesting because Moses I see as like the person raised with white privilege who's willing to give it up to restore his own soul, renew his own humanity, and know his own God. And then Sifra, Pua, and Miriam, I think of three women we've been praying for for about, I don't know, two or three years in our prayer for loved ones, Alicia, Patrice, and Opal. These are the founders of Black Lives Matter. And, and they kind of represent all the women using their voices to resist Pharaoh. The first resistance come to Pharaoh comes from the women to affect the beginning of the liberation. It feels like the energy, the powerful leadership that's coming in our time is going to be coming from women. So 
my first midrash on this, midrash just means like commentary, connecting the story to contemporary events, has to do with just the, the call we're all under to face widespread white complicity with white supremacy. So the Exodus storyteller is speaking to us from the deep myths of history. Pharaoh was the orchestrator of oppression, but the orchestrator is powerless without an orchestra. So the people I noticed who were least surprised by the election in 2016 of our latest Pharaoh, who's unnamed in Exodus, and I think is best to be unnamed here so as not to feed the narcissism. Um, the people least surprised by the rise of our latest Pharaoh are the people who experience white supremacy every day of their lives. So they're not oblivious to it. They can't ignore it. And they understand how deeply embedded it is in our culture. It's like a virus that flares and recedes, but it doesn't go away. So white supremacy is a disease of the mind caught and cultivated by cultural contagion. It's a, it's a thing. It's a disease of the mind caught and cultivated by cultural contagion. And it's the, it's the quintessential American infection. It's never been faced with brutal honesty by the entire population. The kind of honesty that leads to deep collective repentance and amends. We're all affected by it. The only question is, what are we doing to see it, to name it, and to dismantle it? So thinking Pharaoh, our current Pharaoh, is the cause is such a grave error. Pharaoh is the symptom of the disease. And because it's a culturally transmitted infection, it means as soon as we're born, we start absorbing it. You know, culture is conveyed by a thousand influence per minute all day long. Uh, so what we need for this is not like more liberal white guilt to face this. We need a heightened sense of white responsibility in particular and empathy. And those of us who are designated by society as white need a new fearlessness in facing it in ourselves, even in the midst of all this anxiety of pandemic. Um, we need to deny the demands of the Defensive ego. Uh, we need to refuse to be comforted by being less symptomatic than someone else. We need to see it with unflinching eyes. So, you know, we're having this uh, class facing white supremacy in ourselves and in our families. Um, Susan Schaefer and I will be hosting it. It starts July 25th, so next Sunday, or is it July 26th, Sunday? I think I got the date right. Next Sunday, uh, for six Sundays, and we'll be meeting on Zoom from 4 uh, p.m. Eastern Daylight Time to 5. And so if you're going to be part of that class, go out and get um, Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. Me and White Supremacy. You can download it um, and get it pretty easily, and we'll be using that as a workbook. So my second um, midrash has to do with a forced labor foreman. Um, it's fascinating how this connects with our current situation. So that force of, lab of uh, forced labor foremen must have been a, a big force. Like they say there were 600 in the story, there were 600,000 Israelites 
only half of them were, were the slave population, the men. Uh, that's 300,000, give or take. If one foreman could supervise 20 Hebrew men, well, that's a force of 15,000. So it's also a picture of the painful origin of policing in America. Uh, policing in America began as a private slave, slave patrols hosted or hired by uh, plantation owners. Um, before there were like organized police forces, there were these slave patrols. And when I first heard of this, which was embarrassingly recently, it was at a TFAM um, seminar, Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, I, I asked Oceana, uh, my stepdaughter, who just graduated in criminal justice, about it. And she says, oh, yeah, I, I learned about that from my two black professors. The white professors didn't mention it at Michigan State, but the black professors made a point of telling us about it. So we have to face the history of policing in America if, if we're going to be part of the healing process. This, the, the past isn't dead. It's not even past, said Faulkner. So... And just listen to the text carefully about the, the, the forced labor foreman. And they, referring to the Egyptian people, they set over them, the Hebrews, forced labor foremen so as to abuse them with their burdens. So the people in the story, the Egyptians themselves set the system up, not the forced labor foremen themselves. The forced labor foremen are like pawns of the system that created them. So, you know, like the most popular legislation in my lifetime in America, the one that gets bipartisan support, even in a very polarized time, is always the crime bill, right? <laughs> and what does every crime bill call for? It always calls for wildly popular, both parties, more police. More police is like as American as apple pie. And so the point is not that we have a bunch of bad police officers. The point is we have a cultural disease called white supremacy that affects all of us, including the men and women who become police officers. And two thirds of police officers are white. 83% are men. This is the demographic that did the most heavy lifting to put a white supremacist in the White House. So how could we not have a problem? We have a culture-wide contagion called white supremacy. That's the problem. So let's close. Um, I know this has been a lot. Um, the text is, is packing a lot of dense stuff into it. Let's close with uh, where the Exodus story began. It's, it's weird. In order to face difficult, painful realities like this, we have to practice self-kindness because it's like we have a kindness deficit and kindness has to be something we practice with ourselves in order for it to flow in our relationship to others so the beginning of the story is a fearful pharaoh spreading his fear to an entire population it's like fear is our achilles heel we can't live without it and it's necessary for survival we have to be aware of threats, but for most of us, it's in a state of constant overdrive. You know, like, what if Pharaoh had just been able to name his fear rather than simply inhabit it, rather than just running with it? 
I have found um, one of the most helpful practices is learning to notice myself in a fear loop and then naming it as fear and then taking it to God as though I were a little child and God were like my mama or my daddy or my grandma. Uh, my grand I didn't know my grandfathers. I knew my grandmother or like my dear friend. And then doing that though, with a sense of kindness, of compassion toward myself, because you know, we're human beings, we're saddled with these overactive alarm systems that easily get overstimulated, just like young children, they get easily overstimulated, right? Too much sugar, too much going on, too much media, it's bedtime and they're all wound up. We get like that inside our heads. And one of the things I found really helpful in dealing with this is to take that position of kindness toward myself and go to like, I think of it as like an alone space with God. There's no one else watching. It's like a private meeting. This won't be posted on Facebook. And instead of saying, God, I'm afraid, which I think is a really good move to make, um, naming the fear, that's a step away from simply inhabiting the fear. But instead of saying, I am afraid, I say, Ken is afraid. Like, I'm a good friend to myself, and I'm taking me to God, and I'm telling God, you know, Ken is afraid of this and so. And there's something about that framing that just kind of works for me to bring my fears to God. Because, um, you know, when we're fearful, what we need, what we're seeking and needing is a very gentle reassurance from God. And I, I think of a line in Psalm 72, may God come down like a spring rain or like dew on newly mown grass. May God come down like dew on newly mown grass. And I think of like my jangled nerves when I'm fearful as like the top tip ends where the lawnmower has cut the grass, you know, and, and the, the moisture pours out and it's, I picture it being kind of like raw and sore. And then the gentle spring rain or the dew in some translation is like God coming on the gently mown grass. It's, it's like, um, like we've all been washing our hands and using hand cream, you know, on your chapped hands. It just feels so good. And so I just want to suggest we take, um, take a little short time now, and then Cassie's going to lead us in a, in a uh, body awareness practice. Um, let's take a moment now. And if you're game for it, to just try that, to just imagine yourself being in a, just a private space with God, and you're picturing God as, as in the most kind way that you possibly can, as like your grandma or your mom or your dear friend. And you're taking yourself to go to see God as your best, as like your best friend would. And you're saying, like in my case, Ken is afraid of fill in the blank. Just go ahead and fill in that blank for a few moments. 
and I'll close with a prayer. Oh God, who understands the whole vast scope of history and understands the inner workings of our frail humanity and looks upon us with, um, with pity. Oh God, I pray that you would um, fall on us like a spring rain, like dew, on freshly mown grass, and you would calm our jangled nerve endings, and you would lead us in the path of kindness to ourselves so that we can be kind to others. I pray this in the name of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.